Good morning. I want to tell you a story about my five-year-old son. When he was uh, two years old, this happened three years ago, he had a really bad cold one night. And so about one o'clock in the morning, I hear him crying. And we have kind of a deal set in our house that things that happen in the middle of the night, as long as it's not projectile, I'll take care of it. Uh, if it's projectile, my wife takes care of it. I can't, I can't do that stuff. So uh, my, my two-year-old wakes up, he's got a fever. I go into his room, get him up, take him downstairs, give him some Tylenol. Rocking back to sleep, you know, love on him. He's my big blonde haired. You've seen Elias, you know who I'm talking about. So he's not really easy to lay back down. So I lay him back down in his bed. About 1.30 in the morning, I go back into my bedroom. And I notice something very, like, odd. My cell phone is lit up. Like it's 1.30 in the morning. And I go look at my cell phone and there's a missed call and a voicemail from the captain of the Warren County Sheriff's Office. And I'm like, what in the world is he doing awake at 1.30 in the morning? And why is he calling me? And so, therefore, I knew that this couldn't be good. Uh, you may not know this, but for the last uh, six years, since 2008, I have served as a chaplain for the Warren County Sheriff's Office. So I pick up my phone and I listen to the voicemail. And I don't think anything could have prepared me for what I heard. Basically, the long and short of it, what I heard was, Sean, we need you. It's bad. It's real bad. There's been a crash following one of our pursuits. And one of our deputies has been killed. We need you to get here as quickly as you can. So I woke my wife up and told her, you know, kind of what was going on, got dressed, and I raced out of the house. I showed up over in Lebanon, and uh, the first guy I came up to, I, I, had, I still didn't know what was going on. I just knew I had to get to where I was supposed to, told to go. So I pull up, and um, the first guy I come into contact with was this other deputy's best friend. And I don't mean just like they were buddies on the sheriff's office. I mean best friend, best man at each other's wedding, vacation together two to three times a year, every year. I mean, these guys were inseparable, worked for each other. This other guy was in this part of this pursuit as well. And so as we're sitting there, just not really saying anything, the captain walks up and he says, hey, I need you two to come with me and we need to go and, and notify this sergeant's wife and his, his family. And so we knew that was part of my job, but never thought I would have to do that to like a part of the sheriff's office. I mean, my role as a chaplain and one of my roles is whenever there's an unexpected death in the county, um, I'm the one who comes and knocks on the door and has to relay that news to somebody, which is not fun at all. Um, so we, we get a game plan. We go and we meet the sheriff. We meet the sheriff just down the street from this guy's house. And we come up with a game plan of how we're going to deliver this awfully, terribly bad news. And from there, we go and we spend the next five hours with this guy's wife and his three kids, ranging from ages three to eight years old. And I'm telling you, it was one of the hardest nights of my life. Just a week prior to this, I had just walked the entire sheriff's office through a training on how to deal with stress through critical incidents. Understanding that the job of a law enforcement officer, everything you do is a critical incident. We don't see that as the public. We just see them as people who write us tickets and they're jerks because of it, right? But realistically, every call they get, they never know what the next call is going to be. And so they're dealing with critical incidents. Most people don't realize the, the bracelet I wear. They always ask me, why do you have a random bracelet that just has 822 uh, on your bracelet? Um, that was this guy's unit number. And so for the last three years, I've worn this bracelet every single day just as memory and respect to him. So why did God let this happen? 
Do you remember the very first time you ever asked that question in a tragedy? God, why did you let this happen? That question has been asked for thousands of years. If you look back at the life of Job, Job is sitting around with his friends. Job is the oldest book written in the in Scripture. If you look back, Job and his friends are talking. And his friends look at Job and they say, you're going through all this because of your sin. For thousands of years, we have wrongly assumed this question, why do bad things happen to quote-unquote good people? And as I was getting these questions and other deputies, and, and I kept asking the questions myself, where was God on May the 10th at 1 o'clock in the morning? Why would God let this happen? Why would God allow a man with a wife and three kids at home who's trying to protect us be killed by somebody who's trying to harm us? I didn't have the answer. I didn't understand it. I couldn't say that out loud as the pastor that everybody's looking at. That's the unanswerable question. It it dogs us to this day. Is why does God allow his people to suffer so much? You know, Mother Teresa is documented kind of joking around saying, Lord, if this is the way you treat your friends, it's no wonder you don't have very many. One skeptic, as he was looking at the ravages of war, he's quoted saying, either God isn't powerful or he doesn't care. If you've never had your faith shaken by an inexplicable suffering, then you are rare. But be thankful. One day you will. It's inevitable. It's going to happen to everybody at some time or another. And I think even the most dedicated believers, they wonder at times why God permits so much hurt in this world. We see that unjustified pain often shakes our faith because we can't explain its source or understand its purpose. I mean, we're an educated society, am I right? We go to school so we can answer questions. And we can't answer these. Has suffering been sent by God to punish us for our sins? Sometimes that may be the case. You know, Moses, he wasn't permitted to enter the promised land because he lost his temper. Don't take that survey in my house or it might be known that I might have lost my temper once or twice in my life, right? You know, Miriam, she was temporarily struck with leprosy because she undermined Moses' leadership. I just wish God would bring that back. You might undermine my leadership have a little leprosy for a little while. That'd be great, right? Not for you, I guess. Herod was eaten with worms. He died because he assumed the glory that belonged only to God. Hebrews chapter 12 says that God disciplines us as a father disciplines his children. It's for our good. As you read through that first passage of Hebrews 12, you get down to verses 6 and 7. It says, even as we show respect... To our earthly fathers who discipline us and give us the rod of correction, so should we show respect to the heavenly father, even though we experience God's painful rod of correction. Over the next seven weeks, starting today, we're going to be going through this this topic of trusting God in tragedy. And during this time, we're going to take an in-depth look at the life of Joseph. And Genesis chapter 37 is where this, this kind of this track starts for Joseph. It goes all the way to the end of Genesis, chapter 50, where we find his death. Fourteen verses in Genesis, all dedicated to Joseph. In chapter 37, I want to give you a, a brief review of Joseph's life in case you don't already have it down. That way you'll understand what we're talking about through this series. But in chapter 37, we find Joseph. At 17 years old, tending to his father's flock with his brothers. And here's what you got to understand. Joseph was not very well liked by his brothers, but he was loved by his daddy. He was kind of known as the favorite. 
Joseph's dad had, had given him this coat. They called it the coat of many colors that he had made for him that Joseph was to wear. His brothers were pretty jealous. And Joseph didn't exactly have a very good filter. Okay? So Joseph tells his brothers one day, Hey guys, I had a dream. I had a dream that you all bowed down to me. Now remember, they don't like Joseph already. This didn't help matters. So they're out one day and they come up with this plan. Let's kill our brother. We're sick of him, right? Our dad loves him more than anybody else. Let's just take care of him. So they throw him down in this well and they're going to kill him. And then they realize, whoa, 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 maybe this isn't the best idea. Maybe we should just sell Joseph and make it look like we killed Joseph or make it look like Joseph died. So they come up with this plan. They do this. This Egyptian comes by. They sell Joseph to this Egyptian as a slave. They, they tear up that coat. They took a lot of price doing that. They put some blood on it from an animal and they go back and tell their dad, hey, we got bad news. Your most favorite boy was killed by an animal. He's dead. So now Joseph lives in Egypt. He becomes a slave to a, a man named Potiphar. And he goes in Potiphar's house and he's kind of taking care of all of Potiphar's house. And here's what you need to understand about Joseph. Joseph was a lot like me. He was a really good looking dude. All right. Just remember that. Joseph was a good looking man who honored God and honored his masters. Potiphar's wife understood that Joseph was a good-looking man. And the Scripture tells us Potiphar's wife wanted to lay with Joseph. Joseph refused because of the respect he had even for his master, even though he was a slave. And he said, I cannot do this to my God or my master here on this earth. So Joseph refuses to sleep with Potiphar's wife and, and, and flees. A few months ago when I was preaching, we talked about fleeing from sin the way I flee from snakes because I hate them. Push through tab down in the process. I'm not scared flee. And that's what Joseph does here. He flees from this sin. Well, Potiphar's wife comes up with a plan. You humiliate me, I'm going to get you back. In the midst of Joseph fleeing and running, he leaves a garment behind. She takes it. When Potiphar comes home, she says, that servant of yours, he tried to rape me. And I screamed. And when I screamed, he ran but he left this piece of clothing, proof that he was here in our bedroom, proof that he was trying to do this to me. So Potiphar does what anybody would do, I guess. He throws Joseph in prison. While Joseph is in prison, he, he runs into um, a cupbearer, a, a chief butler, and a baker. And they have this dream. And, and Joseph begins to interpret this dream for them. And he tells the, the chief butler, you're going to be restored back to Pharaoh. Cupbearer, I mean baker not such good news for you. You're going to be beheaded. And these dreams come to pass. And so Joseph tells the butler, he says, listen, before you go back, don't forget about me. When you get back to Pharaoh, remember me. Tell Pharaoh about me. Tell him I can interpret dreams. Tell him I'm a good man. Let me out of here. I guess the chief butler enjoys freedom a little bit much and he forgets about Joseph. A few years go by and Pharaoh has a dream. Nobody can explain it. His sorcerers, his advisors, nobody can interpret this dream that the Pharaohs had. And all of a sudden the butler remembers there's a man. His name was Joseph. I remember him. So they go get Joseph out of prison. They bring him to Pharaoh and Joseph interprets this dream. There's going to be seven years of a famine. There's going to be seven years of bountiful harvest. And you've got to have a plan. Because if you don't, everything's going to be gone. So Pharaoh's impressed with Joseph. Pharaoh removed Joseph from prison makes him his number two guy in all the land over his house, gives him his signet ring and says, you will get us through this. Just five chapters 
chapter 37 to 42, this is what we find in Joseph's life. The ups and the downs. The, I'm on top of the world. I'm in the bottom of a pit. I've been sold into slavery. I'm now, hey, this is not so bad. I'm, I'm, I'm running a guy's house. Oh, I've been accused of something I didn't do. I'm thrown into prison. Hey, don't forget about me. You did forget about me. Great. More years of suffering. And then all of a sudden the Pharaoh comes and brings him out. Joseph understood what it meant to sit through suffering. He was no stranger to it. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to consider some potential sources as to where our suffering comes from. The first one is, is one that's no stranger to me. And sometimes we're suffering because of our own stupid mistakes. You know, we smoke for years and then we get lung cancer, emphysema, and we want to blame God. Or we're promiscuous and we contract some venereal disease and all of a sudden we want to blame God. Or we're, we're not honest and we lie at work and then we get fired and we want to blame God. Or we don't study for a test and we, we fail and we want to blame God. There comes a time where we have to own up to our own mistakes. The Bible says in Numbers chapter 32, you may be sure that your sins will find you out. We have no right blaming God for those things that we bring on ourselves. Do we suffer because of a satanic attack? That seems to be rare, but it's real on occasion. Um, Satan attacked Job and he lost everything, right? The Apostle Paul said he was tormented by a thorn in the flesh that came from Satan. And God used that thorn to keep Paul humble. But as Scripture records, that thorn came from that one who was here to steal and kill and destroy. Do we suffer because we live in the wake of other people's sins? Maybe this is the most painful one of all. A drunk driver or a person texting on their phone, not paying attention, slams into our car. Our parents get a divorce. Our kids, no matter how much we love them and pour God's word into them, they rebel against God and against us. The Bible says that the sins of the father are visited on the third and fourth generation. A little baby is born addicted to cocaine. Because the mother was addicted to cocaine. It's not the baby's fault. It's not God's fault. It's that unfortunately we reap the consequences from the sins of other people. Do we suffer because of persecution? You know, when Paul writes his letters to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, this is what Paul writes. He says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Some pain is the direct result of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. The first century Paul, all the way to the 21st century, true at Kathy at Chick-fil-A, you are going to suffer persecution when you boldly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Some suffering is the result of living in a, a fallen world. The Bible says the whole creation groans, longing to be redeemed. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, way back when at the beginning of time, our, our entire earth has been off kilter. You look around the world right now, look at the diseases that are coming and wiping out multitudes of people. Hurricanes, storms, fires, floods, earthquakes. A few weeks ago, uh, we had a disciple now for our student ministry here at church. And our speaker was coming from Dallas, Texas. He called me Thursday afternoon. He goes, hey, uh, my flight's been canceled. I'm like, what? You're at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. You know, they don't cancel flights out of there for no reason. Oh, man, we're getting a terrible storm. They've canceled every flight in the airport. 
I'm thinking to myself, there's no way. So I go look at the radar. And sure enough, there's this little bitty red cell right over Arlington. And I'm like, that's a teeny tiny little storm. I mean, it's red. Yeah, it's bad, but it's, it's small. Why do they cancel storms because of that? Come to find out that storm only lasted 15 minutes. But the 100 mile an hour wind ripped roofs off of apartment buildings and, and other different buildings. 100 year old trees knocked over like bowling pins into houses. Complete devastation in just 15 short minutes. We see graphic videos of the earthquake in Haiti, the hurricanes that hit the Gulf Coast and the East Coast. And we're reminded that ever since the creation, ever since Adam and Eve have fallen, we have been negatively impacted by their sin. Insurance companies will take this and they'll label this an act of God. However, very rarely do we take the rain like we've gotten for the last few weeks that give us beautiful trees and color. We don't label those acts of God, do we? But the negative things that come along, it's always, always an act of God. Even if we can identify the source of suffering, we're perplexed by this three-letter word. And that word is why. Why would God allow this? You know, God's powerful. Why can't he stop it? The Bible assures us that God loves us with an everlasting love and that nothing is impossible with God. And if that's true, then why doesn't he protect his followers? We love our children and we protect them. So if God loves us and he's all powerful and can do way more than we can do, why doesn't he show it by shielding us from these terrible experiences? Maybe sometimes he does. Matt Proctor was the uh, president of Ozark Christian College. And he tells this story. Back on May 22nd of 2011, they lived in Joplin, Missouri. You can probably already tell where this is going. He and his wife, Katie, were driving these two 15-passenger vans full of junior high kids. And they're driving them back from a youth event. The tornado siren started going off in Joplin. The wind started going really crazy. And Katie was in front of him. All of a sudden, he said this huge tree fell right in front of her van. She slammed on her brakes, screeching just inches from this tree. Now there's nowhere to go. They can tell it's bad, so they jump out of the car. He yells for all the kids, get out of the car. They go run into a house. They beat on the door. They ask this person, can we come in? They say, yeah, get in our basement. So they go in the basement and they wait this storm out. Here's what Matt and Katie didn't realize. Had that tree not fallen, they'd gone 100 more yards. They'd have been right in the path of a half-mile-wide F5 tornado that killed 161 people in Joplin, Missouri. A hundred more yards away. We ask, why doesn't God spare his people from suffering? Sometimes he does. Maybe oftentimes he does. However, when he intervenes, we're usually not aware of it. Or we label that as a coincidence. But we usually don't label it as an act of God, do we? I'll never forget where I was at on March the 2nd, 2012. I was in Louisville, Kentucky at a youth ministry seminar. Me and some of my friends went down there for this conference. And I've got a really good friend who lives in Louisville. And I called him up and I said, hey man, are you going to be at this conference? He's like, no, I can't make it. I was like, well, let's grab lunch. So he says, okay. So we get down there that Friday afternoon. <clears throat> we go in and we grab lunch. And he gets a phone call. And, and, and remind you, it's getting a little windy outside. It's dark. You can tell there's a storm coming. He gets a phone call from his wife and says, hey, Will, I need you to go right now and go get the kids. They've shut down the school. Kids are all dismissed. I need you to go get them. There's a really bad storm with tornado warnings coming. I need you to go get the kids. Now, here's something you need to know about me. I love rain. I love thunder. I love lightning. I hate storms. I kind of start to panic a little bit. 
We get back to our hotel. It's about 2, 2.30. And all of a sudden, the city of Louisville begins to just shut down. The Louisville Slugger Museum is shut down. We were going to go there. We had a few hours to kill. I'm like, this is crazy. So we did what every responsible young man would do. We go to our hotel room on the 22nd floor of this hotel and watch this thing come right at us. We're right along the Louisville, right there in Louisville, right along the Ohio River, and we see these storm clouds. I mean, it's, I've got video and I've got pictures of, of the rain and, and that's it, not even here. It's, it's over there, but you can see it. It's so powerful. It's so strong. The wind, the waves on the river, it's crazy. We were taking all kinds of video. All of a sudden, these clouds that are doing this start doing this. And we watch this. And we didn't get a drop of rain. And I sat there and, and, and we began to make fun of the city of Louisville. Well, you shut down the entire city and didn't even get a raindrop, you know. Talk about an overreaction, right? We went on with our night, thankful that this thing went somewhere else and didn't come to where we were. Probably wouldn't have been a good outcome on the 22nd floor of a balcony. But we woke up the next morning on March the 3rd and I felt a little sick to my stomach. Because what we realized is that March 2nd and 3rd was the deadliest tornado outbreak that moved through North Louisville. It was a direct hit in many cities in, Louisville, in, in southern Indiana. The storm resulted in 41 tornado-related fatalities, 22 of those happening in, in Kentucky. Now listen, I'm not saying that God spared Louisville because I was there. He probably did, but I'm not going to say that, right? But we need to recognize that there are times where God does shield people. Not always, but it does happen. And the sad truth is this. He doesn't always intervene. What he does for one, he doesn't always do for others. That Joplin tornado killed 161 people. This one in the Miami Valley, or I'm sorry, the Ohio Valley, killed 41 people. 202 people total in just two storms. So why didn't God spare them? Why did God leave their families left to grieve their death? And that's the question. Why? There's no easy answer to it. I'm not going to be so arrogant to act that I can't answer that question because there are much smarter theologians than I that can't answer that question. But there's one simple analogy that I think will help. Why does a father take the training wheels off of his kid's bike? The father knows that his actions will produce some suffering. A spill is inevitable. There's probably going to be a little scrapes and bloodsheds and, and, and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's painful. Let's just be honest. I've got, a, I've got one of my kids who's seven years old. And he gets one little scratch. You, you'd think it's done. He needs to go to the hospital for two weeks and just, just stay there, okay? I've got another. My five-year-old, I told the story about a minute ago. He got hit in the mouth on Saturday just yesterday with a baseball bat. That was great, right? Don't tell him this, but his tooth went all the way through his lip. He would have freaked out. He had known that. But I mean... There's things that are going to happen. It's inevitable in life. However, as we watch from a distance as our kids learn to ride a bike and they fall and they get hurt and do all these things, what we realize is that there's some adventure and there's freedom. And all that comes at the risk of pain. If I were an overprotective father, you know, my child would never experience that wind in his face and, you know, flying down the sidewalk and, and experiencing all the things that little kids experience as they begin to ride their bikes and their training wheels. In fact, if my main objective for my kids was just protection, 
That means my kids would probably never play sports. Which means inevitably a baseball bat to the face every now and then, maybe, right? They would never drive a car. They would never date the opposite sex. They would never get married. They would never have a child. They would never go off to college. I would never let them do these things because I have to protect them in a bubble, correct? No. The risk of pain and failure contributes significantly to our maturity and fulfillment. If we can understand that pain contributes to maturity, we're not puppets on a string. We're, we're free human beings that live in this fallen world, but we're free. We're given the privilege of living here as free human beings. We're, we're going to crash. And we're going to win some pain sometimes. But our response to pain is what is important. I'm sure you've heard this before. Pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. I wish somebody would tell my seven-year-old that, right? God doesn't prevent us from experiencing pain, but he does make three promises that help sustain us. And I want to go through these three promises this morning. Number one is this. He promises that he will be at our side through the suffering. Think about that. God makes a promise. I will be at your side through that suffering. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. My entire life, I've kind of held on to a secret. But we're friends here, so I'm going to tell you, but keep it in this room, okay? I'm scared of the dark. There it is. It's out there. I don't like the dark. I was in law enforcement before I was in ministry, and that didn't go well either. No matter how much gear I had, I did not like going through dark buildings, through dark alleys, through dark anything. I'm scared of the dark. All right, there it is. It's out there. When we were kids, we had a few horses, and we had a barn. And my job... Because I was the only one of the three boys that enjoyed horses. My job was to take care of them. I had to feed them. I had to clean stalls. And I'm going to be honest with you. There were nights that my horses went without food because I lied and said, yeah, I went out there and fed them. But I wasn't about to walk out to that dark barn. I just wasn't doing it. Some nights I was more scared than others. I don't know. It got to the point where my parents ended up stalling a light switch on the barn to the house. So I could be in the garage. I could flip the light switches on at the barn. So even though I was walking to a dark barn, I could see the light. A couple weeks ago, we took our high school students on a bonfire. And we were out in the middle of this big, huge open field. Trees all the way around, but wide open. And um, got a little confession here. We took some of our high school boys on a snipe hunt. If you know what a snipe hunt is, you can appreciate this. If you've never been on a snipe hunt, come see me. I want to take you. It's awesome. So we take these boys on a snipe hunt and we tell them, all right, here's the deal, guys. There's this line of trees. We've got to get in these trees and shake these trees. And these little snipe birds are going to jump down and they're going to take off running. And these other two guys are going to be on the other side of the field and they're going to have a trash bag with a, with a flashlight behind it, kind of where you can see through the bag. And they're going to see this and think, oh, that's safety. And that's like a cave or something. We can run into it. And they're going to take off and they're going to run to this bag and we're going to chase them. We caught at least one, but there was a hole in the back of our bag and it got away, so... I don't have it to show you. I don't have a picture, but it, we did catch one. Never been. I'll take you sometime. But the point of that is, as we left that night, I got to thinking to myself as we were walking back to the cars. There is no way in this world I would have walked into those trees if I was out here by myself. That, it's just not going to happen. I took a, a freshman, one of the freshman boys. I was like, come on, man, let's go. And I was making sure he's coming with me because I'm not going there by myself, right? And these are some creepy looking trees. There's no way I'm walking into that tree line if I'm out here by myself. There's no way I'm out there by myself, right? As we're walking back to the cars, there was no fear. There was no nothing. It was just, hey, I'm with a bunch of guys and it's safe. 
That's how I've been my whole life. I've had a fear of walking through the darkness. But the good news is that no matter what suffering looms in your future, the one who has all power and authority of the universe will not let you walk through darkness alone. King David wrote, Yea, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. There's a familiar plaque and it reads this. It says, Lord, help me to remember that there is nothing that's going to happen today that you and I can't handle together. Regardless of what happens, the Lord will be there to comfort you and strengthen you. He'll lift you up and He guarantees it. He promises He will be at our side through the suffering. Second thing is this. God promises that suffering will mature us and benefit us if we let it. You know, that's the big problem that we have. We'll go through something, but we refuse to learn from it, am I right? We refuse to grow from it because we want to go back to that whole pain is inevitable, but misery is optional. It's not optional, it's misery. You know, we've been through pain, and so we're going to go through some misery here. Jesus told his disciples, he goes, hey, I want you to go ahead and get in the boat, and I want you to row across the lake here. And I'm going to go up here, and I'm going to pray, and I'll meet you on the other side. And while Jesus is up praying, he notices this storm that comes, right? And his disciples are in this boat and they're rowing and they're, they're literally fearing for their lives. They're freaking out because the one who protects them, he's not in the boat. So Jesus sees this. And in the terror of the night, he comes walking on the water to save them. You see, that frightening experience deepened their understanding of who God was in their lives. Because we're not in that boat, so we don't think about it. But think about if Jesus was a physical person standing here and he was walking with you everywhere and protecting you and you're seeing all the miracles he does. And then all of a sudden you're in this boat in this crazy storm with waves and he's not in it. Think about the fear that is going to overcome your life. I'm going to be scared to death. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not going to be a good outcome for me. But what they see is that he comes and he saves them and, and does something impossible. Not only does he calm a storm, but he walks on water. Peter gets to experience this with him. And Peter briefly walks out on that water. See, that was a traumatic experience for them. But the Lord came and their faith was strengthened through it. I think that sometimes those who have been through a painful process can agree with this statement. I heard a guy say one time, I never grew so much as I did through that experience. But it was so painful, I never want to grow that fast again. I can understand that. The experience serves as a reminder that, that God doesn't exempt us from pain. His goal for our lives is not our safety, it's for our maturity. The third promise that, is that God will make all things right one day in heaven. Revelation chapter 21, the first seven verses here John is writing, and it, it's, it's very remarkable what he says. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Let me pause right there and just give you a little illustration here. How many of you have ever been to a wedding? Ever been to a wedding? Okay. How many of you have ever seen a, a really ugly bride in a nasty, torn up, dirty dress? Me either. Me either. And so this is what he's describing here. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Right at the very bottom of verse 7, he says this. He who overcomes will inherit all of this. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. You see, heaven is not wishful thinking. It's a divine promise from a God who always keeps his word. I've heard Pastor Brad say this a number of times. We can trust God now because we know God's past. Can I ask you just an honest question and and feel free to answer it? Has God ever lied to you? He hadn't lied to me. I've only been a Christian for 16 years. and He's never lied to me. There have been times where I've gone, God, where are you in this situation? And then I look up and I go, oh yeah, right here. We'll be free from pain. There'll be no tears, no permanent separation from loved ones. One day there's going to be this magnificent reunion. Not like the ones here that we try to avoid with our families, right? But a magnificent one in a real place called heaven. And that promise is what kept Abraham going as he was living as a nomad in the tents. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about Abraham and Moses here. He says, talking about Abraham, he was going, he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. 14 verses down, Moses, when he was, his life became nearly intolerable. It says he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. As a student pastor and a young adult pastor, this is one of those things I wish I could just burn into people's brain. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy pleasures of sin for a short time. It's what keeps Joni Erickson Tata going in spite of being paralyzed from the waist down. As we talked about, it's what, it's what keeps Joseph faithful in spite of depo- disappointment after disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. Joseph remained faithful. When you endure pain, instead of asking that three-letter word, why, 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 there's two words that I want you to, to think of, three, two words that I want to come into your mind. The first one is time. God makes all things beautiful in His time. You know, so the day is like a thousand years in God and and a thousand years is but a day for God. And he promises that one day sufferings of this world will seem like a moment in light of eternity. Now, I've got five kids. My youngest one is one. My oldest one's nine. How many of you in this room can tell me, enjoy them because it's going to go by quick? How many of you can tell me that? Listen to your own advice. One day, the sufferings of this present world will seem but a moment in light of eternity. Be willing to wait on the Lord. The second word is trust. In John chapter 14, Jesus' words say, Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms, and I am going there to prepare a place for you. Just trust me. Wish I had a dollar for every time I said that to my kids. Just trust Daddy. Just trust me. The subtitle of this study, it doesn't say triumph in tragedy. It's trust in tragedy. Sometimes we can't see any victory because of the pain and the suffering that we're going through. And we have to just hold on. If we knew the exact source and the purpose of suffering and we could see the result way ahead of time, there wouldn't be a whole lot of faith needed to get through it now, would there? The writer of the book of Hebrews defines faith as chapter 11, verse 1. says, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Listen, I understand it's not easy to trust God when you're being slayed. It's not easy to trust God when you're going through tragedy. But God asked you to trust in his love and his power and his ultimate goodness through it all. And when you say, Pastor Sean, I don't know how to find that. Look at the past. Look at how God has always kept his word. Look at other tragedies that you've been through. You've seen other people walk through and understand that God's word is true. You know, the sergeant that I spoke of, he died three years ago. And like I said, I didn't I didn't know his family before all this happened. But let me give you an update that's just three years down the road. Um, I walked in my door that 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 first day, that first day I was gone from 1 a.m. till about nine o'clock at night. Um, had to turn around, and be back up at four o'clock the next morning, to be back in there at five. It was the longest four or five days of my life. And I walked in my door and something happened that I was totally unprepared for. I saw my three-year-old sitting at the table. They were eating dinner. And this guy's son was three who I just spent the entire day with. And I dropped to my knees and just lost it. Knowing that I had another day with my son. And I began praying that day that God would intervene my son and this guy's son's path. I didn't know how that would happen, but I began to pray, God, somehow let our paths come together. And I literally prayed this for years. That's only been three years, but you'll understand in a minute. I began praying this year after year. In August, I go to the elementary school and I look at the kindergarten roster and I find my name, my child's name and this guy's son in the same class. I'm telling you, my wife thought I was crazy. I, I literally began to celebrate. I literally began to just get excited. Because I knew God had answered a prayer. For whatever reason, he answered that prayer. And to this day, his son and my son are great friends. I had the privilege to coach this boy in baseball. He's now seven years old. He comes to our house. He's been to this church with us. His daughter and my oldest daughter have become really good friends from spending so much time together at the ballpark. And all the boys get together. And so now the girls want to get together. And so now they're best friends. And they spend countless hours together at the ballpark at practices and at games, playing and doing rainbow looms and all the crazy little things that girls do. I don't get it, but they do it. A family that was disconnected from the church is now back in the church. So his wife and all their kids are back in church. I don't think that God's done working in the lives through this tragedy. It's only been three years. But what I can already see after these three short years is that time... Plus trust reveals God's good will and his amazing grace. In this series, we're going to see how that life and that truth played out in the life of Joseph. Usually when we consider this amount of pain and this amount of problems, we look at Job. 
But Joseph was a man who endured and stubbornly held on to his faith just as Job did. He continued to be faithful to God through a series of tragedies. He wound up forgiving his family. He found out he wound up being able to save his family from that famine we talked about. It's a valuable lesson about trusting God when tragedy strikes, even though we don't understand that three letter word. Why? Even though God gives us a lot of answers in his word, we can flip through his word and we can find answer after answer after answer. There's Bibles out there that have answers in there. Like if you're dealing with pain, go to this passage. If you're dealing with sorrow, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. Go and, and read these passages. But we don't get the answer to that question, why? It goes unanswered the most out of any question that we have for God. And so my guess is that for many of you in this room today, you probably have a whole lot of whys in your life. The challenge for you this morning is to reaffirm your faith and your confidence in God's sovereign plan. Even if those answers, even if those answers don't come on this side of eternity. You may be sitting here today and you say, you know what, I don't even know if I know the God you're talking about. I'm not even a Christian And why would I want to serve a God that you are sitting here openly saying is allowing me going to go through suffering and tragedy and pain? And I'm going to tell you this. Because he loves you. And even though you may go through suffering and tragedy and pain, guess what? Remember when I said that this is a fallen world and we live in it freely? We're going to go through those regardless of whether God's on our team or not. It's better to have him on your side. I want to pray this morning.